0: Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Happy New Year to all my listeners. Um, I want to thank you for being faithful listeners of Inside Personal Growth. Um, without you, there would be no podcast program. We're exceeding 500 podcasts with authors from around the world on books of growth of inspiration um, and health and vitality. And today, joining me from Minnesota is Pilar Gizermo. And Pilar, I actually met at a Bioneers conference many, many years ago. And we have continued to stay in touch. Um, She is the author of, I shouldn't say the author, she is the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Experience Life, Um, Experience Life for many of you who may not know is a magazine around health and fitness and how appropriate this time of year for us all to be speaking about that Good day to you Pilar, how are you?
1: I'm great, Greg. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be with you. Well,
0: thanks for being on. We appreciate you taking a little bit of your time. And obviously, as the editor-in-chief of a magazine that revolves around fitness, nutrition, exercise, diet, and the way to live our lives, this is a great way to start our new year. And uh, Pilar also has not only uh, published... Um, uh, th- what I want to call courses, but she's got a course at Entheos Academy, and that course is called Refine Your Life, and it's or Change It Completely, as she says. We're going to be speaking with her about that course that she's done. She's also authored many articles with inside of the magazine itself, Um, Obviously, if you type her name into Google, you're going to come up with lots of things. Well, Pilar, thanks for being on with us. And I think um, at this time of the year, at the beginning of the year, we're all really looking for ways to change old patterns, to change patterns that don't serve us, Um, whether it be diet or exercise or building new relationships or breaking out of old molds or any of these things. And you have 10 big ideas about changing your life and your course. And in your estimation, where should really somebody start if they're displeased with kind of the course or the direction of your life? I think this is just like the funnel point. It's like, okay you know i hear all this but i don't even know where to start and so people break their resolutions um they yeah. make a few of them but they break them you know the, i think the statistic is they break them within the first 2 weeks of the new year and here we are already at the uh, at the 13th of january so speak <laughs> speak with us about that if you would
1: we're already in prime relapse season. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Well, I think, you know, in the course, Refine Your Life, which I should say is really an expression of a lot of the work I did over the course of my 30s and early 40s, and I continue to do now. Um, the, the coursework is really sort of a greatest hits collection of the best tools and processes I discovered as I was doing that work, combined with tools that I developed where I felt like there was a gap, at least in what I needed. And one of the most essential components I discovered, the very first point in the course that I teach at Entheos, is change is a process and not an event. And I start with that because I think so many times we presume that like a resolution or an intention to change is really about the achievement of that particular goal like losing the 10 pounds or the quitting smoking i really think the interesting part of making a change like this is the experience of the process specifically i think of it as a cycle of assessment figuring out where you are what's going on what you want to change commitment Namely, what am I willing to do about it? <laughs> and then the third part is really about taking action and getting feedback. And this is the point where people are experiencing right now typically. So they've gone through assessment, they figured out what they wanted to do, they committed to a change, and then they started taking action or trying to take action, and now they're getting the feedback that is specifically telling them you're missing support system, you're missing the information or knowledge or environmental um, help that you need. There may be a whole bunch of obstacles that you need to address in your life. And then the fourth step after assessment, commitment, and feedback is follow-through. And this is still an opportunity that's open to anyone who's struggling with the resolution or feeling like they've failed at their resolution now. I would say no. What you get to do is... Take the feedback that you've gotten, which is that you're not adequately prepared or supported or knowledgeable enough to make the change that you want. And then follow through by seeking out the missing information or missing support or missing structures that you need. And the cool part about it, Greg, and the reason that this is so powerful, once you start to understand that process and that you haven't failed, (laughs) you can jump back into the, the process and really start again with assessment. What do I need? to do differently. What, for me, whenever I would try to change my body, I would run into all of these obstacles, including things like I wasn't very good at managing my time and energy. I really didn't understand my own sources of motivation, some of which were really unhealthy. You know, I was chasing a body on the front of a magazine cover. I really didn't, hadn't done the exploratory work of What are my own reasons for wanting to be healthy and in a better body? And so for me, I had to really start from go. And I think this is what the course Refine Your Life is about, is walking people through the steps and understanding the process of change more thoroughly. It's interesting to note, the second point in the course is start where you are. And that's really just saying wherever you are, if it's in crisis or freaking out, or actually just fine and wanting to tweak your life a little, it's important to know that too, and the class really kind of takes you down slightly different tracks depending on the level of urgency of change that you
0: have. So let's let's talk about that a little bit more, because, you know, radical change, some people make radical change as a result of a death of a loved one or the loss of a divorce or whatever happens in their life or a child that has a life-threatening illness. These things like impact them, and sometimes you see radical change in people's lives um, the the for the most part, though, what you find is you find that this what I would call systemic type change for a lot of people is tough it, it's frightening they're uncomfortable with it. What would you advise people to to do and or make part of their life to find? Change as being comfortable you know you see people that just resist it you know it's just like oh my gosh you know this wasn't meant for me so they resist everything and the reality is is that that's a tough spot so we've all been there right i've been there too because there's pain so psychologically what is it that you did or you've seen others do that have gotten them through that barrier? over Because you talk about the obstacles, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but so that they can embrace that change.
1: Well, you know, I really like the model of change that James O. Prochaska um, uses, which is thinking about change in terms of pr- stages of change, starting with pre-contemplation. And what you often will experience, people who aren't even thinking about making a change, who are pre-contemplation, There's really not a lot of possibility for making change at that point. And if you try to get someone else to change before they're thinking about it and thinking it's a good idea, you'll meet with massive resistance. Oftentimes the only thing that will move people forward from pre-contemplation to contemplation is a catastrophic sort of experience. Um, There are, uh, there's an alternate to that, which is, I call a catalytic experience, but the catastrophic experience is more common for that um, point. And it's things like having a heart attack or getting a really terrible diagnosis or lab result or witnessing someone you love suffer from a health condition that you know you're vulnerable to. Um, It can be embarrassment, you know, somebody not putting it into an airline seat. That, the kind of experience of just like, I can't live like this anymore, can provoke someone to go from pre-contemplation to contemplation, and from there the stages are preparation, action, maintenance, and adoption, sometimes also called termination. But the other experience, the catalytic experience, also can work, and so people don't have to wait for the catastrophe. If they're kind of on the verge... The other positive experience, the catalytic experience, is often an inspiration, and that can be seeing someone that you know make a change that you never expected would be able to do it and going, wow, if they can do it, I can do it, reading the stories of people who've changed their lives, seeing something that inspires you or suddenly getting a piece of support and encouragement that you hadn't anticipated. But normally that happens to people when they're actually in contemplation. They may not even recognize it, but they've begun thinking about making the change. So once you're thinking about making the change, the, the, the neat thing is you may resist it if someone pushes you to do something you're not ready to do, but you can begin to look for the things you are ready to do, including the moving slowly but surely into the preparation phase, and that's things like learning doing research, having a conversation with someone, going to a place. For example, you may not be ready to join a club, but you might be willing to walk past the yoga studio in your neighborhood and just kind of peer out of the corner of your eye into the window of other people doing yoga. Mm -hmm. That's a preparation activity. And it's something that I think we don't really recognize in our culture as an essential part of change. We go from zero to 60. You know, my life is this way, and tomorrow I want it to be that way. I feel like the most sustainable changes I've made in my own life and that I've witnessed other people make have proceeded through these these phases. Now, it's important to note that even once you've begun preparing, so, I, okay, I've gone to thinking about it. I've started taking some preparatory steps. You know, maybe I got a pair of running shoes. I haven't started running. You know, we've all gone through that. Once you start moving into action, that's usually like, where you meet the resistance and run into the obstacles as we talked about before and then it's very common for people to take a step back into preparation or even a step further back into contemplation Mm -hmm. and go wow i'm not ready i I guess it's harder than i thought i need more support and again going back to that um, assessment commitment feedback follow-through model as long as you're getting that feedback and acknowledging it for what it is like oh i need some more support i need some more information I need some structure to my life. I need to build some skills to do this more effectively and successfully. I think you're winning. And it's important to recognize you are making forward progress. That's really a form of encouragement that we deny ourselves, just reflecting on the progress that we've made year over year. I've learned some stuff. I've tried some stuff. That's great. If what you want to do is accelerate change, though, I think it really... It makes a lot of sense to make a project out of tracking this experience that you're having and that's a lot of what my course is about is giving people tools and worksheets and assessment um, experiments that help them identify where they're missing skills and and capacities and where to get them
0: well so the foundation of your course is is it's very good I mean it's obviously around vision values goals Um, And it's not like my listeners haven't heard this before, but I want to talk about this. I want to dig into it a little bit deeper because, you know, if the foundation of the course, if, if the foundation of anything is set, then actually experiencing embracing change becomes so much easier. And one of the things that you obviously talk about is vision and working toward a vision is important. To have that reward, what advice do you have for those of us whose vision is fuzzy, it's not so clear, and it seems to be off track? Um, You know, this is, I know obviously we, we have to talk about defining our values because that's important and we have to talk about setting goals, but I think one of the most important things really is to have that clear vision of really where it is we want to go.
1: Yeah, I mean, a vision is what I say, you know, pulls us forward into a desired reality, and it is a source of inspiration. I think that many times when we don't have, like you said, a crystal clear vision, we think we just don't have one at all. Sometimes I think it helps to redefine vision as the expression of desire that we oftentimes will have desires that we haven't fully articulated or even owned because either, you know, we don't feel that they're appropriate or that they're possible. There may be rules, you know, in our family or in our culture against having or being or doing those things. But one of the exercises that I start with in the course is an ideal day guided meditation. And it, it leaves out the sort of necessity of going, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? go, (laughs) because that for me was a huge problem. I had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, as late as my early 30s, I was kind of casting around. But I did this exercise when I did not have the answers to, like, what's my vision? I did the exercise of proceeding in my mind through how I wanted an, I just a day in my life to go, mm-hmm. because it seemed more contained, you know, like getting up, how do I want to get up, how do I wear up, like what do, what's the environment that I want to live in, what are the activities I want to pursue, even if I couldn't figure out the job I wanted to do, I could picture the environment I wanted to work in, which was really interesting for me at the time, I certainly wasn't doing anything like I'm doing now, but I had a vision of being surrounded by other creative people who were working toward a meaningful goal, and I knew it had to do with words and pictures. I just didn't know what it was. I, I, you know, I knew I didn't want to be an attorney. I didn't. So I had the things I didn't want, and then I had little inklings of the things that I did, and those inklings are often the breadcrumb trail to the bigger vision. I, I think I developed a clear vision, but I didn't start that way. And so asking yourself those questions of like, what do I know I want? And Mm -hmm. making a list of those things. We also talk about the value of making a vision board, which I think engages the creative mind and the unconscious mind, of just going through picture books of, I mean, uh, magazines or catalogs or observing images that you find on the street that are just exciting to you and capturing those, taking note of them, putting them in a file. You will begin to see the sort of archaeology and evidence of your vision even if you don't have words for it right now. Mm -hmm. And then you can begin assembling those and having a physical model of what you want your life to be.
0: I remember about 20 years ago, uh, Kevin McCarthy wrote a book called The On-Purpose Person. And when Mm -hmm. you say The Ideal Day, we used to to work with, and I used to teach a course, teach his course actually, called The On-Purpose Person, which was an ideal on-purpose day. And obviously we're all um, seeking to find this meaning and purpose in our life. I think it's so important for people to have these values. So let's talk about values because those values are really what set kind of the, the the I don't know, framework for who we are. Now, I think that all of the listeners listening today are, are very familiar with the concept of values. But frequently, again, um, we have a tendency because... We are lured by just society in general to get off track. You know, there's all kinds of things that can lure you down the wrong path. And so you start to readjust, you know, what that value was. You know, you said, oh, well, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to do these certain things because it's in alignment with my value. And then all of a sudden you find that you're rushing to the office or you're rushing to the grocery store or you're, you're just involved in this whole process that you go, oh my gosh, you know, I've already um, uh, misaligned myself with my values. What advice do you have for not only redefining these values, but really living these values? How is it that we can stay on track with them?
1: Hmm. Well, you know, one thing I think is important is to recognize that people's values are not always what they think they are. Many of us, um, you know, claim values... It sound great, you know, like love or, um, you know, peace or happiness or generosity or something. And it, we often have never really done the exploratory personal work to figure out what those core values are. So I really counsel people to begin with what I call a peak experience exercise, where you just cast your memory back over the course of your life and look for two or three moments that were really extraordinary standout moments where you felt the most inspired or happy or satisfied or at peace. And really just write down the the little bits of those experiences that just stand out in your mind. Um, You can then secondarily do the same thing the other direction of looking at the two or three experiences that were the most disappointing or mortifying or, like, just gave you this, like, ugh feeling, and usually um, between those two exercises, you'll start to see some interesting indicators of what your values really are. Mm-hmm. You know, like in my own life, I discovered that some of the most extraordinary moments were moments that I was surrounded by or um, involved with a beautiful space or something that smelled and looked beautiful, something that just inspired me in its gorgeousness. And I would never have identified beauty as being a value for me, but I started to realize, like, while that is a really consistent element, like, I do well surrounded by beauty, I like to create beauty, it's important to me. Mm -hmm. And that translates into all of these other things, like the places in my life that I've been the most grossed out or disgusted or freaked out was being confronted by ugliness of one kind or another, often human ugliness, you know, unkindness or injustices and things that offended me it's important to go through those kinds of exercises, I think, because otherwise you don't really have anything to measure your relative success or failure, if you want to think about failure. I don't totally believe in failure, but when you're pursuing your so-called values and you're still not happy, a lot of times it's because you're pursuing values that are someone else's values or values that you you think you should have. But when people, let's say you do get to the point, Oh, by the way, I'll say this too. The third way to get at it is to look at people whom you really admire and who've been great inspirations to you and who you really respect. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking now just about like celebrities, but people in your own life who have characteristics you admire, oftentimes those will also be an indicator of values. Typically what people, when you say people get off track and they find that they're living out of harmony with their values, Correct. It is also because they are feeling pushed or pulled by the by the society's values or by other people's values. And I think the only way to kind of get ahead of that or develop a kind of immune system is really to develop some mindfulness practices on a daily basis that let you find your center and yourself. And that sounds very cliche, but for me, until I learned how to master my own nervous system, and I was constantly in flight or fl- fight or flight. I was always reacting and being concerned about what other people thought. My fear of other people's judgments was so profound. My concern with other people thought of me or how they'd see me. It, it, those things overrode my values because my values never had a chance to speak. I never had a chance to tap into my own identity. So I really counsel people to do three minutes in the morning. And I mean literally three minutes. I set a timer. <laughs> I used to have to set a timer roll out a yoga mat, I sit, I take a few deep breaths, I light a candle, and I spend a minimum of three minutes just breathing and sitting or doing something that's a contemplative act or that feeds to my values. Like I like to play my guitar, which is a beautiful instrument. I like to pet my dog. I find her beautiful. I look out the window at a beautiful scene. I will write something or read something I find beautiful. And that just reminds me who I am. And then I Mm -hmm. can go on with my day in the center of that value. You know, whatever your values are, you get connections to them. Well, I think Most it's time, I think it's great
0: can... that you're you're providing the listeners with practices, things that that you can implement. Mindfulness practice, meditation, obviously, listening to good music, taking a walk in the park, whatever these things might be that we can do to break. The, the shackles that we have of thinking that we're attached to this. In other words, you know, it's like the story we tell ourselves. We're trying to rewrite that story. And I yeah. think breaking that mental model, that, um, that lure that comes in, and by doing these, these are, these are tools you're giving them that actually do that. And I think it's, it's great advice. Now, one of the things you speak about are action plans and action steps. And um, we know that they're important. And you speak that you know that finding these is going to provide inspiration to keep taking actions in spite of any challenges or obstacles. And I want to address that. Um, and you have a great quote uh, by Sherry Huber: um, "How you do anything is how you do everything." You have in the in the in the actual participants guide speak with us about action steps and actually meeting any challenges or obstacles along the way.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say, I love that Sherry Huber quote and I use it all the time. And it's a Zen, I think it's a Zen Buddhist kind of true uh, saying that mm-hmm. I first heard from her. But the notion that what you can look at your life and see evidence of you know, your areas of challenge or your natural tendencies in anything you do is a really valuable one and I think when when we start to take action and run into obstacles and find ourselves thrown off our path, it's worthwhile looking at what threw me off in this case because what throws you off in one situation is often the thing that throws you off in many many others, specifically, um, like let's say people have a tendency to procrastinate, you know, like how did this thing I promised to do not happen? Well, this, I did choose to do these other three things instead, or we might find first, you know, I had to prepare, I had to perfectly prepare everything, and then I ran out of time. Um, or you might notice that the way that we start taking action, we, the way we get thrown off is we get distracted by other people's needs. You know, I was going to head to the gym, but then my, you know, sister called and had to tell me about the terrible date she had last night. You know, how, how is that happening in other areas of my life? So, we talked at the beginning about you know assessment, commitment, feedback, and follow through. If you're getting feedback that you have certain tendencies to avoid or um, self sabotage or to lose steam, how do you lose steam? You know it might it's then your follow through step is paying attention to adjusting that pattern and designing experiments where you say no to the old pattern and allow yourself to move forward with a completely different approach. That's easier said than done, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And this is why the action part of this process is not just challenging or difficult. You're truly redefining who you are. You're changing your identity, and that's a lot, which is why some of the steps I encourage people to take are preparatory. You know, I, I ask the questions, what are the skills that you are missing and that you need to develop? It may be something as simple as time management or budget management. It may be the skill of saying enlightened no's to people, saying, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. I've got this other commitment. Um, in some cases, it's about that. So missing pieces of stuff, knowledge or skills that you have to develop that you discover by observing your own behavior. The how you do anything is how you do everything. Um, the other big helps, I think, are looking at... What support systems can I access? Who do I know who's good at this that I could ask for advice? Uh, Is there someone else that I need to actually have buy-in? You know, in some cases we start off on a big change plan, but we don't have our partner on board with our change or our family, and we don't really have a conscious conversation with them about, listen, I'm intending to change my life in this way, and I would love your support, or I recognize it could cause some challenges for us as a household. Same thing with work. You know, it can be very helpful to have the preparatory steps of having those conversations. There are many, many other examples. But my point is that looking at what resources are missing, figuring out how you can access them, figuring out where you can get support or insight that you don't really have, and then developing a plan for when you get into trouble. You know, one form of preparation is just simple planning for, in you know, pretty predictable obstacles. But instead we just like launch into action, wait for the obstacle to hit us in the head, and then go, "Oh, too bad, I guess I
0: can't do it. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a second. Just this whole community of support um, uh, idea. It, and some people have really good communities of support and others don't. But especially when you're going pillar through a change process, and when you're actually shifting your own consciousness, you're elevating your consciousness about your health about your mental health, about your relationships. You find that what happens is you you have a tendency to gravitate away from people in a maybe a community that you used to relate to because now you don't relate anymore. They haven't changed, but you have. What advice do you have for people that are finding themselves actually, you know, moving away from people that aren't supporting them, like even family members? because yeah. they think you're a little crazy for what you're doing, um, and finding new support structures and systems, whatever they might be.
1: Wow. Well, I mean, I think you've effectively defined exactly the, what the situation is and, and the right thing to do, which is <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to um, acknowledge the reality. You know, I love what Byron Katie says of, you know, when we, when we argue with reality, we lose. But only a hundred percent of the time <laughs> mm-hmm. and if the truth is that you're changing and the people around you are not and you can feel that there's resistance and that it's going to really in, uh, endanger the highest choices that you've made and committed to for yourself I think first arguing a little bit with the notion that we often have that it's like it's a bad thing to change your community or to leave certain relationships behind or just to set them to the, to the periphery of your life for a while while you're doing something else We often have huge um, stories we tell ourselves of how it's either, you know, immoral or wrong or it will ruin our lives or will never be forgiven. And I think that's often not true. I've, I've had many people move in and out of my life at various courses and you know the truth is that happy people are always happy for you doing things that make you happy. Mm-hmm. Miserable people will always be miserable and will probably try to make you miserable for pursuing the things that make you happy. It will be almost impossible to really successfully pursue a goal while remaining really deeply invested in the opinions of people who don 't want you to do what you 're doing
0: so you have really to have like- a you have to have a way to break free you have to be okay to do that if that's what it means, even if it's only temporarily. Yeah. Um, I know that sometimes these big changes create upheavals in relationships, divorces occur, um, separations from other family members, from people that you've been close to for a long time. And it is it is challenging to work through this, and I think the advice you're giving is great advice for that. Um, you, you Did you have more that you wanted to add to that? Well,
1: I think one of the main things is that understanding, it, it's much easier and better to move toward something that's appealing and allow that to be the focus of your uh-huh. um, effort, as opposed to just moving away from things that are difficult or problematic. The more you move toward communities of support and inspiration and like-valued people, the more you'll find that your life is simply pretty full and you're getting your needs met and you'll find that the, sometimes the presence of the previously disruptive or resistant people just becomes a non-issue. You know, like, yeah, I, yeah, my mom doesn't approve of me, whatever. You know, like, i got a whole group of people that love me and think this is great who are doing this with me. And it's just amazing how it can shift the focus from, oh, I have to quit my family, my job, my marriage, to I'm having fun and having a lot of support over here. It's less of a problem. I do think, though, that that's another area, um, Greg, where developing skills and knowledge is important. We don't come into the world learning how to build a new tribe. We come in the world learning how to cope with the tribe we got,
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: so um, I think it's important to sort of read on this. We've written a lot about this dynamic in Experience Life magazine, everything from dealing with a high-maintenance friend to finding a new tribe to dealing with people who say, hey, I don't like it that you've changed. But ultimately, it really comes down to building a core level of self-esteem and the skills to negotiate your reality. And that's not a small thing. This is, 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 we always say, you know, you have to learn the skills of a healthy, happy person. Um, It's not just about doing the actions. You really have to develop a mindset that allows for other people to not find you right and still you can find yourself right. And that is probably the foundation of all
0: healthy change. I think it is, and I think that if people... Um, could understand that the story they tell them stores. So if you change your story, you can change your life. And it yeah. I reminded me while you were speaking of a movie that I revisited on a trip to New Zealand, which was that Marigold Hotel movie about how all these people came to India, right? And they all had some story in their life they were trying to change, whether somebody had just lost a husband versus somebody who was separating from their husband at the time to somebody who was dealing with an illness or a relationship. These are the stories that we live, and it is is complicated, and it can be mixed up, but the reality is you can find such truth And you can find such meaning in those stories if you're willing to look at them and really face them head-on as to what it is that is your true authenticity. Now, one of the things that you speak about, and I love it, and it is part of your new book that you're writing called The Art of Being Healthy in an Unhealthy World, is this. you've created a lot of manifestos. manifestos. Um, You created the Revolutionary Act, 101 Revolutionary Ways to Be Healthy, and you talk about in this manifesto for thriving in a mixed-up world, you state that the way we are living is crazy, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I used to teach a course called uh, Never Mind the Noise, Thriving in a World of Ever-Increasing Complexity. And you, you, I want to know what advice do you have for many people out there that are listening today, male or female, that are feeling overburdened, overworked, um, uh, under-satisfied, uh, not having the meaning. Um, it's almost like they want to get off the wheel of life. Um, what would you tell them, and what advice would you give them to find meaning where they are?
1: Well, I think life is inherently full of meaning and wonder. So I don't think people have to look terribly far. I think what you do need to do is, you just alluded to it, recognize that the situation that we're in is pretty crazy-making and that feeling disconnected from meaning and from purpose and from any kind of bigger-than-you experience is pretty impossible when you're stressed out and in fight-or-flight mode, which is something that our culture creates as a chronic experience. Mm-hmm. So when we're overworked and we're underslept and we're like have our heads in our cell phones and our TV screens and our computer screens, we become neurologically kind of fractured, and it's it is incredibly stress producing. It's not our bodies were never designed to live in the world that we have set up. And when I say the world that we're living in is crazy, the way that we're living is crazy. What I mean is that our DNA and our genetic makeup as human bodies as minds body mind systems simply don't function well in the systems that we've created as normal society. So if you're going along and then you're feeling like you're a failure because you're not thriving in this world, no, I would say you're having a very healthy response to a very unhealthy system. And I really, one of the points I make over and over again is that you have to just look around and see how horrific Uh, uh, an unhealthy culture we've created, Mm -hmm. if more than 50% of us are chronically ill at any given time, if two-thirds of us are overweight and obese, if 70% of us are dependent on taking at least one prescription drug a day, and many people take two, three, four, five a day just to survive and cope, and a lot of those drugs, remember, are antacids and antidepressants and things that are trying to deal with the symptoms of inflammation, which are produced by the way we live. It's not you that's crazy. (laughs) And so I think it's really important to feel like if you feel disconnected, first recognize that that's a healthy response. Then you really have to start getting courageous, though, and recognizing that if you want to feel more connected, if you want to feel sane, if you want to feel centered and healthy and be healthy, you will need to begin making choices that are not the normal choices. Because Mm -hmm. the normal choices are what have gotten us here. And when I emphasize the importance of building a skill set for surviving and thriving in this world, that's why. It's like if if I were to dump you in the middle of a forest and you had no primitive living skills and just said, hey, go for it, you would suffer and experience enormous stress. But somebody who, like my friend Kenton Whitman, who runs Rewild University here in Wisconsin, you could put him in the middle of the forest and for days that guy would be fine. Figuring it out. You know? The, the stress that we experience is really the gap between our knowledge and skill set and confidence and the confrontation of the system we're in. And we can change it. You know, we can change the culture, slowly but surely, but in the meantime, we can develop skills and knowledge bases that allow us to thrive even in a crazy world or a noisy world. Yeah. And that's really what I think the work you and I and many of our colleagues is about is helping people equip themselves to function more successfully and peacefully and happily even in a world that confronts them almost daily with challenges and that's a fun project. It doesn't have to be a terrible disaster and a misery and a slog. I think learning those skills is fun and interesting and it's a better place to put your attention than just watching endless reruns of TV or getting sucked into you know nonstop social media. If you wanna change your life you're going to have to change the way you spend your time we all have 24 hours a day how many of those hours right now are invested in helping you develop the skill sets that will allow you to feel like a better happier person
0: well we it is a spiritual journey and the reality is we are spiritual beings having this human experience and say that over and over again but (laughs) but we have to understand that the spirit and the soul is longing to be expressed and frequently what's happening is, call it ego, call it whatever you want, but I'll use the word ego for now, it suppresses this opportunity for us to do that. And this kind of leads me to this last question, because it's really around um, the dumbing up of people, and you and I talked about it a little bit, um, and it's, it's amazing the research that's been done and the challenges, and that is boredom versus the use of our cell phone. I was looking at this, um, I actually I was listening to an NPR story, and the scientists have been doing research about you know, the number of times we're all checking our, de- our electronic devices, the ones we're tethered to. Um, and it was saying that if, if the brains actually are um, involved in a very important Uh, element when we're unplugged, yet we're not giving them that time. And so that is impeding our ability to become more brilliant, to be more creative, to get in touch with the soul, uh, to get in touch with the spirit that's longing to be desired in our authentic selves. And it was interesting as I listened to the story because they were interviewing people that were on the subway in New York and you know everybody's got their devices and they're checking them. And, And most times, 51 times or more per day. Right, So I would consider that that's probably um, a habit that isn't truly healthy. What advice would you, in closing here, give our listeners to be more mindful and to be more respective of truly just some downtime to let themselves go and to find kind of their calling? mm
1: mm-hmm. Well, we, it's funny, I love this topic, and we wrote a piece years ago, I think in 2009, an experience life called Give Yourself a Break, that was about the value of idleness and the breaks that, um, in which most magical things happen, including the big ideas and ahas. The neurology, I would I would start by saying, knowing something about how brains work and how nervous systems work can be really empowering, and I have to use the science to, to enforce on myself the respect for downtime and breaks and rest, it turns out that, because otherwise I'm inclined, just like everyone else, to be constantly fiddling with my phone. And it is addictive. And I know I am addicted to it 51 times a day. I mean, sometimes, I swear to God, I might check my phone 51 times in an hour. It's just insane. But what happens is you're robbing yourself of what your body and brain need to reorganize the the information that's already in your mind and make it accessible so that you can have good ideas and be productive. Mm -hmm. Our our brains, um, most of the research suggests that there's a part of our brain that's incredibly important that when we are only when we're resting only when we're just allowing ourselves to daydream and think about nothing at all it lights up like a christmas tree on a pet scan and it's the exact area that is essential for having big ideas and making big connections your brain uses downtime to store the information and tag it and Program it so it's accessible in the future. That all happens while you're not doing other stuff. So if you fill up every single second of your waking hours with taking in new information, as simple as looking at tweets or, you know, checking out your latest Facebook post or posting something on Instagram, you're robbing yourself of the most valuable bandwidth your brain has for doing more more important and useful things and for managing things like your immune system. Mm-hmm. Which it aids downtime to function. It's it's really interesting. It's so the it also interfe- interfa-
0: They've also found it interferes with the sleep patterns as well. So oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: It's, there's nothing in your body that will benefit from that kind of behavior. And unfortunately, it's been socially become very socially acceptable mm-hmm. to, to check our cell phones while we drive, read, eat, sleep, talk with other people. It's not. Our brains also don't multitask. And that's something that I think science finally has just established. All it does when you're doing more than one thing at a time is interrupt the um, efficiency of your thought patterns. Focus has become a kind of endangered resource because of the way we live. But it turns out that all of the things we think we're doing to increase our productivity, like multitasking, absolutely gutted. And a lot of those things are wildly inconsistent with our values and our goals and our larger intentions for our lives. So one of the reasons I suggest people start the morning with three minutes of just breathing and being still is because until you have a benchmark experience like that, it's hard to get back to that state if you've never had it Uh or to experience the contrast between sitting still and breathing and setting your intentions for the day versus being in reaction to your iPhone. It's just something that we're losing connection with. You can reground yourself in it in three breaths, you know, taking three deep breaths and setting your phone down. There's a lot of tactics for unplugging that we read more and more about these days. But I think it really begins with that core information of knowing you are robbing yourself of exactly the mental, psycho-emotional space you need to achieve the goals you want when you do that.
0: Counterproductive. Well, Pilar... I want to thank you for being on inside personal growth and spending a few minutes with my listeners and for my listeners, Uh, it's Pilar Gisermo and Pilar Gerasimo okay see I knew I would mess that up Pilar and and she is the editor in chief of Experience Life magazine Um, I get the magazine you can get an online version I highly recommend um, that you go to their website and we'll put a link we'll also put a link to um, the revolutionary ways 101 ways to be healthy that will be in the blog post as well Um, I also put a a link to Entheos Academy so that people can check out the course um, Refine Your Life. She's got a great participants guide that you can download from there, which is awesome. And she is working on her new book as well. We will put a, probably not to be released until um, 2016 as she's saying, so probably a year away. But do follow Pilar because um, her magazine, the um, articles that are written, the writers do an exceptional job, a very thorough job. I can't say enough about it. It's one of those magazines that I wait for, uh, simply because of not only the artistic design and the way it's laid out, um, they just won some awards, she was telling us she was in New York but really, truly the reading experience and, and um, the thoroughness of the articles and the content itself. So, Pilar, my hat's off to you for continuing to not only um, bring a team together that does such an exceptional job, but actually make a contribution to society in a positive way around people's uh, mental, spiritual, and physical health. Thanks for doing that, and thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. Is there anything uh, else I- you'd like to add?
1: no i just would love to say thank you so much for having me and i i really appreciate your support and camaraderie and i'm always thrilled to connect with people through social media so yeah anybody that wants to hang out on twitter or instagram or facebook can hit me up and uh the site for experience life is experiencelife.com if people want to check that
0: out and we'll put a link in the blog as well we'll put a link um, to Pilar and the magazine's uh, Twitter page as well. And they, by the way, for my listeners, um, in the magazine, there's a section too as well, the online version with all kinds of videos from the actual articles that have been written um, on the authors themselves. So they do an exceptional job of using all the various latest multimedia techniques to allow you to... um, I had you want to go as deep as you want to go with uh, <laughs> with the with the authors and the writers. Pilar, thanks again for being on. Thanks,
1: Greg. It was wonderful. <laughs>